Okay, folks, I just need to start this one out with a little note about how fucking crazy this book is. I... These three chapters, the notes that I've had to make to fully unravel the madness. It's about twice as many notes as any other previous group of three chapters, so never let it be said that I don't suffer for my art, okay? Welcome back to Pros and Cons. This is... I, I've lost track of what episode this is, but we're doing chapters 9 through 11 of Riverdale the Day Before, a prequel novel by Nicole Ostow. And we're beginning part two of the book, Afternoon. And we do not begin with a chapter. The first thing we get is one of these intercalary epistolary documents. A notice of intent to foreclose which describes a mortgage default by Manfred Muggs Sr., who we know to have financial problems from the show. It is very hard to imagine that this is going to be relevant to the plot of this book. But who are we kidding? This book doesn't have one of those. It's a page of bullshit legalese, but we can see some strange carrying out of procedure here from Rockland County's government. The letter states, and I quote, you are at risk of losing the property described in this notice to foreclosure. Notice to foreclosure? Is that even the right way to say that? It may be, I guess, but it sounds like you're giving notice to a foreclosure rather than to a person about a foreclosure. Notice of foreclosure would stand to reason. Notice to foreclosure. Maybe that's really what it is, but... Mm. I somehow have my doubts. Anyway, there's no address or description of property given on this. So, like, is Manfred Muggs Sr. off scot-free here? You're at risk of losing the property we describe, and we go on then to not describe any property. The other possibility, of course, is that this foreclosure notice... I'm sorry, notice of intent to foreclose, or, if you prefer, notice to foreclosure actually goes on further. I suppose it's possible that it actually goes on further and we only see the first page in this epistolary section. But we don't have time to ponder these questions over much because it is time for a Betty chapter. Rather than the traditional diary format, this chapter opens with a column entitled Wood Works. Just quite a pun, I guess. It's a really cringy bit of ad copy for the faux wood wall coverings we spent much of Betty's early story discussing so far. She then writes in her diary, talking about how exhausting the blood, sweat, tears, and caffeine that went into writing this piece. This fucking nothing little ad piece. I... It's 185 words, folks. That we are led to believe is the desperate red line limit of Betty Cooper's powers. If we're going to do the, oh, it was so hard to do this song and dance, we really shouldn't also put the piece itself in and expose Betty like that. 
She broods then about how Veronica Lodge hasn't answered any of her communications yet and has to gently parry a text message from Polly who seems desperate to talk to her. Polly does, however, seem excited to hear that Betty is finally getting a byline and is content to talk later that night. Then something amazing happens. Betty congratulates herself in her own diary for having managed to squeeze 200 words out about wallpaper. Well, Betty, I have some truly regrettable news for you about which number is bigger between 200 and 185. Don't let it be said again that I don't suffer for my art. I counted those fucking words and I don't know why, but I did and it came in handy. She exaggerated her own accomplishment to her own diary. She felt the need to add 15 words, I guess, to hit that round number. This explanation is no more ridiculous than the other idea that Betty's not lying to herself. Mikkel Ostow, who wrote this goddamn book, didn't bother to word count the section whose word count she was having a character directly reference. Oh, shit. The, I told you folks this one was a doozy. We just cut now to a later journal entry. It doesn't really even feel like necessarily the beginning of a journal entry. It's kind of almost in the middle of a thought. It's very jarring. But I suppose it's okay because maybe that's her style and all these entries are, like, hypothetically for the same day, the day before, the day of the book, the titular day before. But that brings up a question to me, which is, didn't she describe the time that she met Rad Brad and some other shit in her diary? Is she doing flashbacks within her diary entries? Like... She met this person and didn't journal about it, but then on a later day wrote a flashback scene into her diary about the time she met him? This is madness. The book doesn't stick with the epistolary format, right? There's plenty of it that's not. And yet, bends these Betty chapters over backwards until the muted, wet pops of separating vertebrae can be heard just to keep it as a diary thing but it doesn't fucking matter more than half the book is already not epistolary i'm dying anyway anyway she goes on this extended rhapsody about her love for nancy drew books to preamble the fact that maybe someone's out to get her at work she describes an encounter with Rebecca, her boss, and before we even know what it's about, something bizarre occurs. Betty says, remember, in her journal, and I quote, I knew from last week's beauty roundup that she was wearing up in the air, this is in quotes, up in the air, flyaway gloss from the new color pop, bracket, sick, butterfly-inspired collection. So, in her own diary... Betty is remembering and reproducing for the record a typo or malapropism from a beauty column written by her boss as a side note to the primary note that she knew what kind of lip gloss her boss was wearing, using the bracket sick notation to designate some mistake or strange thing in 
reported speech. I'm very confused. And I hope you are too. Rebecca, it turns out, has somehow been tipped off that Betty's backpack contains, at this moment, a dress, some gold false lashes, some makeup and other fashion things, purloined from the beauty closet, capital B, capital C, which apparently belongs to all Hello Giggles employees to play around with for inspiration. But what's worse, folks, it gets worse than that. The stuff stolen and now in Betty's backpack was from the top shelf, the sacred top shelf where the stuff needed for upcoming features is set out in reserve. And the office was empty. It could only have been Betty. Except... Betty points out that Cleo, the receptionist, who is at this moment obviously trying to surreptitiously listen to Rebecca chewing Betty out, was there the entire time. Betty has no idea why she would set her up, but Rebecca is not really hearing it. She acts all magnanimous and talks about believing in second chances, clearly still thinking that it's all Betty's doing. We then transition to a shareholder's note. From Clifford Blossom to the Blossom Maple Farm's shareholders. This is exciting, exciting stuff. Clifford wants his investors to know that he's working through the delicate process of completely divesting Blossom Maple Farms from its early partnership with Lodge Industries, which is apparently now a bad look. Worthy of note is that the signature line contains the Blossom Maple Farms slogan, which is, and I shit you not, quote, have some syrup with that, ma'am. That's an exclamation point at the end, by the way. It was at this point in my reading that something very disturbing struck me. I was thinking about the timeline stuff, with Betty seeming to make flashback scenes within diary entries that, you know, you would think significant events would have their own diary entries, but, you know, we're doing a book, and who fucking cares? So I was thinking about the timeline, is the long and the short of it, and it's put me in a frame of mind that's probably dangerous to my health. Help me, please? Veronica's first chapter aboard the SS Loophole, let's fucking not forget that, was apparently, like, early-ish or maybe noon-ish? July 4th. July 4th before the afternoon, right? It's the throes of party preparation for July 4th. If that's true... When the fuck was Hiram Lodge in jail? Was he arrested in jail literally later that same night? If so, wouldn't that be a bit fresh for Veronica and maybe not the time to make her fucking debut in a new town? If you remember wearing a witch cape from the show. Did the book just fucking forget that Hiram was in jail at the start of the series? This is going to end my life, people. I keep finding layers of error and stupidity within layers of error and stupidity, and then sometimes you can't tell if it is error or stupidity or both. It is a fucking hall of funhouse mirrors, and it's going to do my head in. Chapter 10. Jughead. Blessedly, this is a bit of a reprieve from the utter madness that occurred in the last chapter, I guess. Um, Jughead reminisces about how his family used to go to weekly movie nights at the Twilight Drive-In and seemed to always be their best selves during the seemingly alternate reality of the movie runtime. Kind of a magic circle thing. As he prepares 
For tonight's movie, he sees Sal, the Twilight's owner, being admonished by a serpent, who he does not recognize, who wants to be informed the moment Sal hears anything from Lodge, clearly meaning Hiram Lodge. After seeming to leave, the serpent then suddenly confronts Jughead about how pathetic it is that he's doing honest work, and gets extremely aggro about it, got a real rage boner, this nameless serpent guy. He also tells Jughead that FP's bid to distance himself from the serpents to get their family back together was either complete bullshit all along, or is now over with, and that FP's been sleeping at the white worm lately. The suspicion about his dad leads Jughead to need to go to Andrew's construction immediately, and from what I read, I don't understand why. I don't really know where that connection was made and the book doesn't tell us so i guess we'll just wait several chapters until we see jughead again then we get a recruitment flyer for the serpents loudly asking at the top are you ready to ride or die then listing the serpents laws and the a serpent never sheds its skin law is crossed out and fucking bracket redacted is stamped on it. Clearly not handwritten. It's a stamp. Not cancelled or nullified or void or anything like that or just fucking crossed out. Redacted. Which implies that this law was rescinded for security purposes before releasing this recruitment flyer to the public, yet you can read the redacted thing. It's just X'd out. It's not actually redacted. Like, again, I'm left at a loss. It seems that Ostow doesn't know what redacted means. This book never ceases to amaze me. We then get a text exchange between Nick St. Clair and someone named Cam, search me, basically gloating over the fact that Veronica seems to have fallen for his pledge of undying love, potentially, and intimating that it's a mind game and that something bad is about to happen to the lodges. Then there's a text exchange between Cam and Annie, further explicating that a bunch of people are going to enjoy watching the downfall of the lodges so i guess we answered my veronica question she literally moves to riverdale the day after her dad gets thrown in jail or arrested at least wait a minute let's talk about due process for a fucking just second i guess he's in custody does that count as being in jail if he's in police custody I mean, he'd fucking make bail. He's the richest person in the goddamn show. Does Veronica not mention that her dad is incarcerated in the first couple months of the show's runtime? Because he would be out on bail at that point, almost certainly. People who do, like, financial crimes don't just get denied bail. And there's no amount of bail that would be too high for him. And so we're to believe that, like, the process of arresting Hiram Lodge and putting him in jail is a same-day process, like, truly expedited, which does not sound quite right from a legal perspective. I don't know. Every time I seek an answer, I find more questions. This is like a zen koan of nonsense when you combine it with knowledge of the show. I, ugh. But speaking of Veronica, chapter 11. 
Veronica. Hermione teases her daughter about how flushed she is, and Veronica manages to redirect her mother from amusement about her daughter's potential dating life to the grimly important business of getting ready for this 4th of July party. Veronica goes downstairs to the shared lobby area full of rich people doing rich people things, which establishes that she is not currently on a boat, thank God, and gets the sense that something may be brewing beneath the surface. She says that her father always said, quote, a lodge can smell subtext. <sighs> While that would be helpful in a literature class, or more charitably defined if someone was talking to her, I guess. Nobody's talking to her. She's just observing. There's just a general bustle of activity. In other words, there's no text. Meaning the ability to pick up subtext olfactorily wouldn't be helpful in this situation. You may think I'm being too harsh on Hiram's nonsense, but we know from the show that he is a cataclysmally inept, emotionally stunted, teen boy-obsessed, quote, supervillain, whose competence is basically 100% informed, and his true talent is not for crime or villainy, it is for saying things that don't make sense if you pay even the least bit of attention to them. Veronica then talks with Andre, master of the martial arts, a bit. And let me tell you, while security might be his gig, his inability to take a message is really awe-inspiring. And it also calls into question why the man with the deadly hands is the guy who answers the phone. But in any case, he gets both Betty Cooper's name and Hello Giggles' name wrong, saying someone named Letty Cooper from a blog called The Giggle Girls wants to talk to Veronica. Veronica then asks if Andre has let Smithers know about this message that he just passed on to her and butchered. She considers internally how that's part of his job. So let me get this straight, if I can. Andre, master of the martial arts, is to answer the more public, less important phone lines, take the messages, and tell them to the butler. Presumably for the butler to then decide which messages are worthy of Lodge attention? I don't know, but there seems to be a lot of points of failure in this system, and I don't really understand. <sighs> she then goes to a cafe to pick up desserts for the party, noticing Cam and Annie, who we only now get context for, who are some friends of hers and Katie's, who are sitting together and strangely did not invite her. Hmm. Side note. Let's just appreciate for a moment how incredibly thin and perfunctory the non-show characters are. It's as though the author needs some characters to do some stuff, but desperately wants us not to pay any attention to them. Nothing to see here, folks, she practically exclaims, giving perhaps maybe one detail. I think we learn what one of these characters' hair looks like a bit. That's it. Got things to do. Anyway, Veronica invites herself to their table and invites them, in turn, to some makeover-type shit to do before the party, and notices that both of them are acting a little bit weird and nervous, and tells them about Nick's love confession. Grace, Veronica's boss from Vogue, then texts her, needing some minor errand run, and Veronica's it, given her position at the magazine. She parts ways with her duplicitous friends, excited about the party and Nick, and there is maximum dramatic irony, because obviously, things will go badly. It's the Verona counter, folks. This chapter clocks in at 13 pages. It's the heftiest one so far, with a paltry four celebrity names. Now, the brand names, though, really picks up the slack. At 26, 26 brand names over these 
That is two per page. And there's a film reference. And then there's a reference that I need your help classifying because she references the children's entertaining purplish green belly dinosaur, Barney. Is Barney a celebrity? Is Barney a brand? Is Barney a film reference? There are arguments for all three of these. And thus, this is one of the greatest moments of complexity in the book so far. Anyway, there's also a literary reference, sort of. Twilight is not named, but it is very obviously referred to in an oblique manner. But let's get into the Veerd, the Veronica Index of Referential Density. We are back up here in chapter 11 to 2.54, a pretty significant reclamation of Veerd from chapter 7's 2.19, although we are still not up to 2.7 like the first chapter. But let's think about this for a minute. Talking to her friends about Nick's love confession, talking to Andre about the messages left for her by Letty Cooper, and thinking that there is some kind of bad thing on the horizon, those are all things happening that don't immediately lend themselves to just brand name BS. So that the density of reference is this high in this chapter, despite actually a couple things happening, is truly impressive. We then get a text exchange between Nick, Cam, and Annie. It's just a page-long mustache-twirling session about Veronica's impending downfall. But then we get something way better. Dilton Doily's field notes. Dilton basically uses his field notes from his scout outing that's going on as an excuse to journal about some of his backstory, which is just so convenient. Recalling a time he wasn't much of a prepper and went on a scout outing of his own as a scout led by his uncle. His dad was normally the scoutmaster, but was on a business trip that weekend, and a whitewater rafting accident led to two things. The tragic death of Dilton Doily's uncle and Dilton's dad absolutely losing it. Apparently, he decided that his son would, quote, never be unprepared again, and set out on this Ahab-like quest to turn his nerdy son into Batman. Knot tying, identifying poisonous plants, knife throwing, water purification, IED defusal drills. You name it, Dilton's doing it. The final test involved blindfolding young Dilton, and driving way the fuck out into the woods and just fucking leaving him there. Dilton then lived off the land for nine days on his return journey to civilization. (sighs) Wow. Dilton is convinced that the actual apocalypse is coming soon, and uh, his evidence has interesting implications. On one hand, there have been four blood moons in four months. And he says that that's long been prophesied to signal the end times. First off, citation needed, doily. But he actually says that blood moons, though they have no astrological significance, still give him the creeps or whatever. He is saying that a celestial body, a celestial event, has no astrological significance and yet has prophecies attached to it, seeming to presage the future and signal something like how fine a distinction are we willing to do here a blood moon has prophecies about it but that's not astrology okay fine the other thing's way better it's that bailey's comet which wow 
they just did the Riverdale brand name smudge technique to like an actual comet, like a heavenly body. Anyway, it's speeding up as it circles the Earth. Apparently its orbit is down from eight years to nine months. And it's going to strike North America. Dilton Doily reasons. Apparently he's done the fucking astrophysics. And it's going to cause an extinction event, which he plans to protect his scouts from through a well-provisioned survival bunker that his dad and him have been building over the last five years. Nobody else talks about this comet, folks. And it isn't in the show, as far as I know. I think Dilton Doily may be very powerfully delusional and badly in need of some help. And let's just take a second to think about this in the broader context. We've literally invented a fake comet on an inevitable collision course with the Earth for what seems to be just the purpose of having a side character have something ominous to talk about in his journal. Why did we do this? What does this weird character-redefining delusion do to serve the story? But I should know better than to ask those questions. Well, uh... Veronica thinks that something's up, her friends are about to betray her, and Jughead knows that Hiram and the Serpents are in some way related. And that, gentle listener, is about as close to plot as we've gotten in the entire time. And we are more than halfway through the book. So, um, I guess maybe a thing will happen. Maybe. In the remaining chapters. But perhaps I ask too much. We'll see you next time with more of this show.